everyone. This is Sean, and welcome to If You Come This Far. Uh, this is a podcast where my friend Chris and I decided that we wanted to invite other interesting people to come have a authentic, vulnerable uh, conversation with us. Really just kind of spice up our conversations. So, uh, so um, today we have... Uh, an acquaintance of Chris's from his time at Notre Dame. Chris? Yeah. Well, first of all, you make it sound like our conversations were headed downhill and that we needed to, like, like it was like a, some sort of step in, in midlife marriage. Like we need to spice things up by <laughs> inviting other people. <laughs> um, I, I take exception to that. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's fair. We needed a threesome in order to get back, get back on it. <laughs> oh Lord. Um, yeah. So, so Dr. Stephen Treziak, um, it's funny. Cause I, I think I may have led you to believe that he and I were old friends. In fact, yes. we, we were not, we'd never met in person before, but we were classmates at, uh, at Notre Dame. Um, and I would say probably Sean, this is the closest we've ever come to forgetting to hit record on one yes. of his interviews. Yes. So, so we we missed the sort of introductions of all three of us, including Steve and me recalling that we lived in, he lived in Alumni Hall, I lived in Dillon Hall. For those of you that, that know Notre Dame, there's a bit of a rivalry there. So we had some fun banter that, that didn't make it onto the recording. But um, but yeah, he and yeah, I- not only, not only we learned that you weren't friends, we learned based on that dorm situation that you actually don't like each other very yeah, much. Yeah, we're enemies. Yeah. We're, right, we're, right. we're enemies. <laughs> right. Uh, uh yeah but but in that sense uh we do go way back right over 30 years um we we invited steve on because uh of a couple books he had written um which we talk a little bit about uh in the course of the next hour uh one called compassionomics the other called wonder drug um compassionomics is about the benefits uh in to healthcare results when doctors can show compassion to their patients uh, mm-hmm. that's oversimplifying but the second book was expanding the, the 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 notion of the benefits of compassion to everybody and and i thought you know as and you tease me a lot about this Sean but as a data nerd um, mm-hmm. Um, it's certainly true that the reason this struck me is because it's all, you know, so much of his writing in these books is based on research. Um, not that not original research, but they've reviewed a ton of research around these subjects. Um, and they have data to 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 as evidence that that these that compassion does yield measurable results. So yeah, and I think the other thing that was really interesting about you talking with Steve and and looking at the work that he's done in writing and writing these books is that at at its foundation, it's about compassion, but it's also about connection. It's about mm. you know, being in relationship with other human beings and um, you know, men living. That's kind of, I mean, that's what it's yeah. all about. And so um, to explore that with him, I think he says what they did is they actually curated about and reviewed about 280 different studies on the, on the subject. Um, and uh, you know, it's clear by our discussion with him that it's something that is, integral and central to his life yeah 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 right and so yeah. and so so both of these books and a lot of what he does with his life is squarely in line with um with with kind of what we work on at men living so um really smart guy yeah really interesting subjects and 
it's all about the data, right? Yeah, it's true. Yeah. It's there's a lot of evidence for this stuff. It's not just as as we put it early on. It's just, these are not just soft subjects. These are um, these are very real. But I just do want to say, even though you know the two of you data nerds, I do want to say that okay, the data is great, but just do it. You know, I mean, I you know, I, 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 like agree. do I do I need the data in order to be kind? Do I need the data or in, in order to try these different things that may enrich my life? Um, yeah. And and it and it's not that clear cut. I get it, but yeah. it's it's good to know that. Well, shit. If I do, if I you know, if I hug this person, it's going to be better as as good for me as it is going to be for them. But and and, and you're unique, perhaps, or or maybe uh, maybe I shouldn't say it that way, but but not everyone approaches life like you do, and there are some people who need to see evidence. Um, all right, let's uh, let's let's hear uh, what Steve has to say. Here's Doctor Steve. Can you guys uh, tell me about your your podcast before we start? And do you just do the audio, or do you uh, publish audio and video, or what's what's the deal? Steve, take a look at us. Do you think we're going to publish this uh, this video? Like, uh, <laughs> I'm having a bad hair day. Uh, anyway, so so we just do audio. Is that we right? Just do audio. That's correct. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And tell me about your podcast. So the podcast is is affiliated with Men Living, which is a nonprofit that um, that we run uh, that is focused on uh, actually men, connecting men for mm -hmm. deeper, more authentic conversations. I'm sure you're well aware, given the subject that we're going to talk about, there are a lot of issues around men being emotional and, and empathetic and engaged yeah. and having depression, anxiety, on and on and on. And so uh, we created a nonprofit about five years ago that focuses on bringing men together, about 400 virtual meetings a year, a bunch of in-person stuff. And it's really just kind of about talking. And so Chris and I met through that. And one day we're having a conversation and we're like, you know what? We we like each other. We should keep having these conversations and invite other pe other interesting people to come and talk with us. And so... Um, so he said, you know, I, I, this guy, he went to this doctor, he went to Notre Dame and he's got this book and it's kind of interesting. And so we put you on the list and I started reading the book, Wonder Drug. And, uh, and, you know, right at the beginning, page seven, along the way, as I read study after study, I felt a stirring of hope. The evidence was clear. The cure for my burnout was not to escape. I could boost my resilience and protect myself from burnout by making deeper human connections so i yeah. sent steve a note i'm saying or i sent chris a note saying that's it will he come and talk to us and so uh <laughs> we're glad you're here well thank you it's an honor to be here thanks for the invite and i look forward to the conversation yeah yeah for sure i would say that if you look at our list that we've done for roughly 40 episodes and and really the theme is to get people in that are trying to leave the world better than they found it make life more yeah. meaningful and so um and you, you certainly fit the bill. So 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 shall we dive in here? We've got probably about seven hours worth of questions for you. So hopefully you have yeah. all day blocked out. Um, <laughs> I've got I've got till uh, eleven o'clock. So we're good. All right, super. Does that work for you? Yeah, that's great. That's great. I'm I guess I'm going to start here. So I you know so first of all, Steve, you um, were not spring chickens. You don't seem to be slowing down at all, which is remarkable. But but you've written, you know, these two books, Compassionomics and Wonder Drugs. I also watched your TED talk. You know, we'll say this in the intro, but you're a medical doctor and a, and a physician scientist. I work in the nonprofit sector and I, you know, I studied engineering. I'm a data nerd. So, so I love what you're doing 
to bring data and and hard you know hard science to these notions that have for a long time been considered sort of soft topics. I've heard you say at one point that I think I heard you say this at one point that in medical school you were taught uh, not to care too much, and I've also heard you talk about how empathy hurts and and compassion heals. So I wonder if there's if you could talk about that correlation and how long you know maybe talk about that background of when you sort of had that aha moment of, well, fuck that guidance that's bullshit. So. My approach is to look at familiar things in unfamiliar ways. So I wrote a book about uh, compassion and the science of compassion, and then also um, a book about serving others. And so you, right away, you might think it's it's a heart story, but it's not. Uh, I think most people have their hearts in the right place. Uh, I believe that. Um no change of heart is needed, but if I'm successful in what I do, then I'm able to change people's minds. Uh, and so my approach is to look at familiar things, serving others, compassion, the things that you said are typically thought to be, you know, soft, um, and examine them not through like a moral ethical lens or an emotional sentimental lens, but through the lens of science. That's how I've been trained. I'm a physician scientist, which just means researcher. I'm a clinician. So I practice uh, as an intensivist, a specialist in intensive care medicine, and I'm the, the chair of medicine um, at my uh, organization in my medical school. And my colleague and co-author, Dr. Anthony Mazzarelli, we just wanted to test the hypothesis that compassion matters uh, and uh, serving others and human connection matters, but not just in meaningful ways, also in measurable ways. And so that that's what we've done. We've we've curated all the scientific evidence, um, and what the research points to is essentially that compassion for others um, can move the needle in ways that can, in fact, be measured. And then when it comes to serving others and um, the data line up in that serving others is really the best medicine for yourself, not just your physical health, but your mental health, your uh, emotional health, even your professional success. And, and so if it's one thing that Dr. Maz and I have found over the last you know five or so years that we've been on this journey, it's that the key to resilience, personal resilience and that's resistance to burnout or depression and all these, the, the key to resilience is relationships. And so when you give of yourself to other people, you get the relationship that flows from that. And that's, that's really the mechanism behind, you know, so much of, of what we found in our, in our projects. A uh, quick, quick follow-up. Um, for those of us not in the medical profession, I wonder if you could give us a little bit of flavor for what the life of an intensivist is, because sure. from my perspective, or my, I'm guessing that it's got to be among the heavier professions. And I'm curious about the rates of attrition in that profession, mm -hmm. uh, the rates of mental health issues, alcoholism, and all the, all the other stuff. So maybe tell, share with us a little bit about to give us some color there. So uh, an intensivist is a specialist in intensive care medicine. So I work in the ICU exclusively. That's what I do. Um, I don't have a clinic or a outpatient practice or anything like that. And 
we're at Cooper, which is in Camden, New Jersey. So it's Cooper Medical School of Rowan University. And then the health system is Cooper University Healthcare. We are a regional referral center. And so we are, um, we take care of the sickest of the sick. And so it's been described that what an intensivist does is that you often meet people and their families on what is perhaps the worst day of their life. And the rates of burnout uh, in our specialty are very high, um, but they're high in other medical specialties as well. It um, and, and that's where the science meets the personal for me. So after almost 20 years at that point of working in the ICU and meeting people on the worst day of their life, I, I became very aware that I had every symptom of burnout myself, every single one. Now, burnout is characterized really by three different things. One is emotional exhaustion. Another is depersonalization. So it's an inability to make personal connections or difficulty making personal connections. And then the third one is the feeling that you just can't make a difference. Mm -hmm. Now, I want to be crystal clear about one thing, because this is super important. Um, uh, and I hope I hope your listeners um, get, the, uh, get this message. Um, it is true that burnout has been studied among frontline healthcare workers more than like anybody else, but that's just the population in which it's been studied. It, there's nothing about putting on scrubs and going to a hospital that makes you, you know, burnout, you know, exclusive to your profession. Everybody's burned out, especially after two years of a pandemic. It just so happens that that's the population in which burnout has been studied so much. And so people think that burnout is a healthcare thing. But, you know, how many people do you know that are not in healthcare that, have emotional exhaustion and depersonalization and feelings like they're not just making, they're not making a difference. It has nothing to do with healthcare. And so, um, you know, especially after what we went through after a couple of years of a pandemic, um, you know, burnout is everywhere. Uh, and so we can extrapolate a lot of the things we learned about studying burnout in healthcare workers just to the general population. And being an intensivist has always been an interesting job to say the least, but it was especially interesting during the pandemic. Mm. That was for sure. So um, that's just a little overview of what an intensivist does. But 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 the key the key message is that um, you know burnout is everywhere. It's not just a healthcare worker thing. And you know I I was burned out, and that's that's when you know I came across the data that it's more human connection, not less, that can be the antidote to burnout. And that's what that's the story that we tell through data and, you know, original science, uh, research publications, peer reviewed journals, you know, over 300, uh, peer reviewed publications in our, in our books. Um, we tell the stories through data, but it, it, it's very personal for me. Was there someone in your life that helped you to become aware of your burnout? Um, my wife for sure. Uh, some good friends. Um, a uh, retired pastor friend of mine. Yeah. So lo lots of folks. Um, and, and, and in short, um, you, you know, you asked me the question about uh, what I was taught in medical school. So mm -hmm. I was taught, I was taught, and this is now going back to the early nineties for medical school for me, I was taught literally don't care too much. 
because too much caring, too much compassion burns you out. Mm -hmm. And I never thought to challenge that dogma. I mean, for 25 years, I didn't even think to, to challenge that. And then I found myself in, in the throes of burnout myself. And I was looking at like, well, what do you do, right? And so what, what am I supposed to do? And the conventional teaching or the conventional thinking was, you know, take more nature hikes by yourself, mm -hmm. go, you know, go on more vacations, do yoga, uh, put on your uh, headphones and block out the world, do your meditation app. And all of those things are fine. There's nothing wrong with any of those things. But, you know, in decades past, we, when we went through periods, code blue, um, not an uncommon thing in the life of an intense. Wow. Wow. Sorry. Mm. Um, so, uh, you know, there's nothing wrong with those things. Um, but to me, that sounded like escapism, you know? And so in, in decades past, when we'd go through struggle, uh, we would find solace in family and in friends and in connection. Right. And now what the research shows is that, self-care quote-unquote practices are becoming more and more isolating isolating so all those things i mentioned you know and to me that just didn't compute and so i was taught not to care too much as if it was some sort of protective shield and so what i did because i'm a i'm a i'm a I'm a bona fide research nerd okay this is how much of a nerd i am i literally went to pubmed which is like the Google for uh, help for medical science. And imagine my surprise when I found that where opinion and anecdote and stories uh, once reigned, now there was bona fide research. And what that research showed is that there is in fact an association between compassion and burnout, but it's inverse. Mm. it's inverse so if what i was taught in medical school was true you'd see a positive association high compassion high burnout low compassion low burnout but what the data actually point to in fact 80 percent of the published studies all go in the same direction that show high inverse high compassion low burnout low compassion high burnout why and and what um what the data point to collectively is that if you care deeply about someone else and you get the relationship that flows from that, then you get like the good, you get the good part about being in medicine. And if you don't have that, all you've got is a super stressful job. So what I did is I decided I was going to do what I called my N of one experiment. You know, so there's only one study subject in my, in my, in this experiment. Uh, and it was me. And so I decided I was going to care more not less lean in rather than detaching and pulling back and escaping. And I don't just mean with my patients and their families in the ICU, but with the nurses that I'd worked with for more than 15 years at that point, um, my colleagues, my trainees, even at home. Mm -hmm. And I got deeper relationships from those things. And that's when the fog of burnout began to lift for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it changed everything. You know, I think it's in in reading the book, and I, I couldn't I couldn't agree more about relationships being what it's all about. And yeah, we've got research now that suggests that when 
when you're in relationship or when you're kind and empathetic and giving that it's going to, there's all these positives. Um, but I find it interesting to me. It seems like we teach our cultural conditioning is just the opposite. I mean, it's about individualism. It's about striving. It's about, so, so, and, you know, uh, the surgeon general would say we have a crisis of loneliness in, in our society. So, so, you know, part of me is reading the book, believing in what's there and like, okay, how do we, how does this become the fabric of who we are? You, you cite, I think, um, uh, one of Sarah Conrad's studies, but she did, I think maybe it was 10, 15 years ago, a study on college students showing that the empathy in our young people is decreasing at a ridiculously high rate. Um, how do, how do, how do, what do we, how do we do, how do we make this change? I mean, it's, I, I guess the answer is things like this book and having these conversations, but how does this become the fabric of who we are? Hmm. Yeah, that's, that is a great question. I, I think there's really three things. Um, and it all relates to mindset. Um, number one is realizing that there is an abundance of rigorously conducted scientific evidence that human connection is beneficial for health and well-being. Number two is is the realization that change is possible. That's not just like a bumper sticker, or a, you know, a platitude. Uh, we can, in fact, raise our game in empathy and compassion for other people and the relationships that flow from that. And that's not my opinion. It's not what I think or believe. It's what we found through in our journey through the scientific evidence. And then the last one is, is time. Um, realizing that to make a, a meaningful connection with someone else doesn't take a lot of time. It just takes intentionality. And, yeah. and we've curated the evidence behind that as well. Yeah. And, and, you know, we, we need to ask the right questions, right? So, you know, if, you know, what, what are the wrong questions like in the workplace? You know, I think the wrong questions are like, Hey, you good, good, great. Awesome. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, yeah. while you, while you didn't even look up from your phone, that yeah. just tells other people that you're, you, you can't be bothered, right. You're mm -hmm. too busy. Um, you know, the better questions are ones that can't be answered with a yes or no. Right. right. Like, yeah. Hey, you know, I heard, you know, I heard your, your mom was sick. You know, I, I'm sure that's hard. Give me something that can take off your plate today. Yeah. You can't, you can't answer that with a yes or no question. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and usually you get something actionable and then you get, it's not like a <clears throat> give to get kind of thing, like a reciprocity, like a transactional sort of thing. It's just that if you build those things into your um, habits, for lack of a better word, um, because your question was, how do we, you know, ingrain these things? Yeah. Um, I think it was Aristotle who said that virtues uh, are, are created by doing the actions, right? Mm -hmm. so, mm -hmm. I'm, paraphr I'm paraphrasing, but um, uh, building these things into your um, daily life, it just becomes who you are. And then um, you can experience all the benefits. And, and so it's, it's a, it's not transactional or, or it's transformational, if that makes sense. Well, I, I was going to say, Steve, I feel like I've heard you talk before about um, 
empathy and compassion not being traits but being skills and it sounds mm -hmm. like you're describing at least in one of one part of your answer sort of some tools that 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 you can help to practice those things uh am i am i am i getting that right yeah so um i used to believe that people were either wired for compassion or they were not right right like it was in their dna or the fabric of who they were it's like um uh, like, like my wife, for example, is the most compassionate person I've ever known. Right. So I, I always used to think, well, she was just born that way. Right. Right. And, and what research does show, to be fair, is that there is some uh, in researchers that have studied like genetic polymorphisms and things like that. There are um, it, it is true to some extent that there is. A, that there are traits that are lead us to better ease with human connection. But m the most rigorous research I've seen behind that estimates that it's probably only about 30% of our capacity, which means 70%, you know, if if we, if you have a nature nurture debate um, that, you know, these things actually can be learned. And so <clears throat> uh, Dr. Carol Dweck at Stanford, she's uh, famous and um, for growth mindset. Yeah. Mm -hmm. In the education space. And so the kids who have a, as I understand her research on in education, the kids that had a fixed mindset, meaning they, when they encountered struggles in their studies, they would think, well, I'm just not smart enough. And so they'd mm -hmm. shut down and not put in the work, but if they had a growth mindset and saw everything is just a collection of skills, when you encounter failure, then you just think, well, I just got to work at it. And mm -hmm. what, what her work has found is that those that had that growth mindset, they will work hard, they will put in the work and they will persevere, um, especially when things get tough. What most people don't know about her work is that she's also studied this for empathy and compassion. Mm. And she's found the exact same thing. Mm. So people who look at these elements of human connection that build deeper relationships, those that look at them as a collection of skills, so they have a growth mindset, those are the ones who will put in the work, especially when compassion is hard. And let's face it, sometimes compassion is really hard. So I try to have a growth mindset about it. Um, and so I, I work at my compassion every day. So my, in, in my ICU, I work on my procedural skills. I putting in breathing tubes and catheters into the heart and all these things that we do, but I also work on my compassion. I definitely don't get it right every day. I mean, I will be the first person to tell you, I am definitely a work in progress, mm -hmm. but I see it now. Mm -hmm. I see it now. And I see that it's possible to get better. I'm, I, 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 don't think I'll ever be an Olympic champion in compassion, so to speak. <laughs> but if I'm being evidence-based about it, and as a researcher, you know, you want to be evidence-based about everything you do. And what the research shows quite clearly is I can, in fact, get better. So I'll never be better than my wife because she's the Olympic champion at our house. But I can get better. And if I don't think I can, that's just not evidence-based. It's just not true. Um, and so I, I work at it. Believe me, I do not get it right all the time. Uh, but I keep trying because I'm following the signs. Thanks for listening to If You've Come This Far. This episode is brought to you by Judson & Moore, Chicago Distillers of American Whiskey. 
They're distilling, barreling, and bottling right here in the Avondale neighborhood on the west bank of the Chicago River, and they're already winning awards for their bourbon, rye, and single malt whiskeys. I personally recommend trying them all, either straight or in their delicious cocktails with some of the great live music acts that come to play in the bar. Check them out at judsonandmore.com. Now back to the show. When you talk about the research, it's the it, one of the other things that I find. So I am a meditator. And what I find sometimes is people, you know, I hear people say, well, I don't really get meditating and, and, and so I don't think I'm going to do it. But then maybe those same people come back and say, oh, I just saw this research that says meditating is good for me. So now I'm going to meditate. And part of me is like, why don't you just fucking try med- meditating for yourself and see what you think? You need some yeah. researcher to show. Sorry, no, no disparity yeah. against research. Hey, some totally. researcher to show you. So the so I'm reading the book and it's like, and I love the fact that you guys compiled and, and curated all of it. Part of it is like, well, why don't you try being kind? And you know, I mean, does somebody need re- research and evidence, you know, re- uh, scientific evidence to say? yeah, maybe I'll be kind, or maybe I'll get into a relationship. Maybe I'll give a little bit more because Steve did this great book. Steve and Maz did this great book. I do. So um, doctors are a strange bunch. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, you know, we were literally taught that uh, when when we talk about evidence-based medicine, I mean, we're literally we were literally taught that uh, the, you know, coming up in the nineties in med school that now everything, every decision you make has to be based on solid scientific evidence rather than just, well, this is the way we've always done it, or this is the way my mentor taught me to do it. You need to have data to defend your practices. And so mm-hmm. remind, remember I was taught, and this was not evidence-based by the way, this was like <laughs> what, what they called a hidden curriculum in medical education, which is, sort of this cynicism that uh, creeps in at some point um, during training. Um, you know, I was taught, don't care too much and and don't make those human connections as, as if it was a pr- protective shield. So when I found the exact opposite, and then I did my own experiment and I tested the compassion hypothesis for myself, and it was the major thing among many others that, um, you know, led to me to getting out of the the fog of burnout. Mm-hmm. We got notes, you know, emails uh, from all over because uh, you know, our first book, Compassionomics, it was a healthcare book, and then we got all these. It, it was it, there's lots of principles that it, that can be extrapolated to all like caring professions or just regular people, but it was it was sort of for a health the healthcare community, and we got all these messages like, "Hey, I I tried that myself, and I got the same results." Yeah. And then Dr. Maz and I were thinking like, well, this can't just be true for people who put on scrubs every day and go to work in a hospital, right? There has to be some common thread, some common thread that, you know, is perhaps even a universal. And that's how our, our second project, Wonder Drug, came out, where that is squarely, you know, focused on everyday life. Uh, and, and, you know, everybody everywhere. And it's the evidence that serving other people, not in a, in a healthcare context, um, but serving other people is, as we say, the best medicine for yourself. And, you know, we put all the evidence of all the, the different benefits, but I, I do think that there are people who, 
while most people might be like-minded to you, like, hey, I'm just going to give this a try and see what happens. There, the nerdier people like me, you know, need some sort of validation before we jump in with both feet, if that makes uh-huh. sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Different, different audiences, right? I, I, I want yeah. to say that I, I bought the book and sent it to this woman that I've worked with who runs a nonprofit that um, teaches kids about character and kindness. And I'm like, yeah, oh, you know, I'm like, you may know a lot about what's in this book, but it's, it's, uh, it's really good. It's, it's, um, you know, if anything, it's a good reminder and there's more evidence. But the thing I said to her when, when I was telling her about it was, you know, it's kind of smart alecky. There's a, there's a, there's a tone of the, of the book that's really kind of joyous as you talk about it. Is that, am I getting that right? I mean, you and Maz are having a good time when you're writing the book. Well, Ma- uh, Maz and I, we are both fluent in sarcasm. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> you and, learned that um, in alumni hall, yeah. right? Yeah, exactly. And and so that that pops out uh not infrequently uh yeah. in, in our writing. So yeah, uh, yeah, it's it's it 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 it, it, it smart alecky, I think um uh, we hope it's funny, but you know yeah, it is it works. Yeah, so I, it definitely awesome. works. Um I I I've got a, a quick one-off question. This is not directly in line with with the the trajectory that we're on, but um have you seen any of the research on empathy and compassion that disaggregates the empathy and compassion that folks are able to show to people in their day-to-day life and in their interpersonal connections versus that which they're able to show to people from, say, the other political party or other countries? <laughs> totally, totally. So there's this um, concept of what um, Paul Bloom calls a, a parochial empathy. Mm. Parochial empathy. So that's like, hey, I'm going to, take great care of these people over here because they're my people, right? Mm. But not, you know, those people because they don't think like me or vote like me or, you know, they are the, um, you know, the other uh, or the the out group as, as psychology researchers, you know, in group are your people and out group are the others that we're either afraid of or, you know, uh, looked down upon or whatnot. Well, what research, what um, Bloom and others have uncovered is that when we practice parochial empathy, on balance, on balance, we actually act worse towards people. Hmm. Um, And so one of the things that we talk about uh, in Wonder Drug is is increasing your in-group. Because if you, first of all, the science shows if you practice parochial empathy, um, it's going to stunt your growth, so to speak, in terms of, you know, making those better connections that can be beneficial for you. But also, um, you know, the re- the research supports that you may not have awareness of it. You might be in one of your blind spots, but you're actually treating people worse. Yeah, that mm-hmm. makes sense to me. I mm-hmm. mean, intuitively, having not seen the research. I'll tell you a story that is is rooted in data. So there was a um, this just popped into my mind, and we covered this um, uh, in our writing. But there was a, a study uh, in the UK, and they studied fans of Man U, mm-hmm. and Manchester <laughs> Manchester United, of okay. course. And what they did is they primed them. Uh, with manu stuff so they to to really amp up their allegiance in the not their allegiance over time but in the moment right before they participate in the study for manu 
And then there were, <clears throat> um, uh, they were uh, on a college campus, if I recall correctly. But there were there were um, they call them Confederates, right? Which means actor. Okay, that would be running and fall and like appear to break their ankle, uh, but they were faking it, of course, right? Uh -huh. And then they compared, and, and sometimes the person that broke their ankle supposedly was wearing a Man U shirt, and sometimes they're wearing a Liverpool shirt, which Liverpool is their, you know, um, bitter, one of their bitter rivals. And sometimes just a neutral shirt, you know, with no allegiance mm -hmm. of any kind. And they found a striking separation between their coming to the person's aid if they were wearing a Man U shirt versus a Liverpool shirt. Wow. But then, <clears throat> then, and this is the key, in a separate experiment, a follow-on experiment, what they did is rather than amping them up for their allegiance for Man U, their team, they primed them with a lot of uh, information and, and film footage about the beautiful game, mm. right? Meaning uh, uh, football or soccer fans in general, totally. right? Meaning like we all love the beautiful game, you know? And so then they did the exact same experiment and what they found is that that <clears throat> that basically eliminated the difference in their their willingness to come to the aid of the person based on whether they were wearing a man u shirt or a liverpool shirt because led you know the the thinking is that they were primed to include everybody in their in group are lovers of the beautiful game yeah yeah they they changed the boundaries of what but what it meant to be yeah. one, one of us, yeah. right? And, Suddenly and Liverpool was one of us. Exactly. And um, uh, researchers from the University of Toronto have found, this is a separate study, but researchers from the University of Toronto have found that in everyday life, regular people have nine, nine empathy opportunities every day. Hmm. So that makes me wonder like how many did i already miss this morning right right and if you if you if you um do things uh, whatever you need to do mentally to include more people in your in group your eyes are going to be wide open to opportunities to help and to serve and to connect and if we're closed minded about that then you know we're going to miss all those opportunities and not only is the you know we're going to suffer from missing those opportunities according to you know the, all the data we've curated listen to the two of you talking like if chris broke his ankle outside of alumni would you have saved him <laughs> knowing that he came from was wearing a dylan sweatshirt <laughs> No, no, way. Way. no way no way no way and, and likewise steve and right, likewise right, so right. <laughs> Well, I live in New Jersey. And so here it's Eagles and Giants fans. Like right. we're, oh. I'm not going to try to replicate the study between those two groups. Right. It's, yeah. It's, it would be rough. Yeah. Steve, uh, as a quick aside, a classmate of ours, I don't know if you ever knew Michelle McNamara. She wrote a book about the Golden State Killer. She died a handful of years ago. She was married to Patton Oswalt, who who made a, a film about it was I think it was called The Fan where he played either a Giants fan or or, uh, or an Eagles fan. It got really dark. Anyway, check that out when you get a chance, both of you. 
Sean, do you got another one? Because I got a couple. Yeah, more. which 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 you caught me off guard when I was thinking about the alumni Dylan thing. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so um, you talk about there's one reference in the book about Mount Self versus Mount Selfless, and and where you are from a selfless perspective. I just finished reading uh, Brian Lowry, who's a researcher at Stanford, wrote a book called Selfless. Um, and the premise of his book is that there we don't have any self really that our self is is built based on others based on our relationships and who we're around um we, I, to me after you know it, there's much more in the book but given that it it in reading your book at the same time it gives a lot of credence to the idea that relationships are what it's all about and 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 so i begin to think about all these people who are not in relationship who don't have friends and 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 try to get to how do how do we how do we do something about that and it's a big it's a big problem and i guess all we can do is what we can do individually right at some level i mean you know write a book and highlight the problem but um i guess the question would be for you guys is does that make sense to you does the self do you feel like your the self is developed based on the relationships uh and the people that you're living around. One thing I, I didn't say earlier, but maybe I should have, is that these, the research that we curated, you know, those researchers, those scientists didn't create the truth. They just did experiments that shined a spotlight on it, but it's been mm -hmm. true from, it's been true from the very beginning. Yeah. And it's always been true. And, you know, it, it dying to self, I mean, that's biblical. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I do think that, uh, that, um, you know, these researchers, uh, including the one that you just mentioned, who wrote that book selfless, I mean, they, they're not creating the truth, just showing us really more deep, giving us a, a deeper insight into, you know, what binds us all and has from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. You also, um, you talk about in the book, and then even with the example, I think, of the University of Toronto, nine opportunities to be empathetic, talk about being a live to giver can can be hard. I mean, it's, I mean, totally. it, I mean, if, if you're, if you're committed to the, if you're like looking for those nine opportunities to kind of be empathetic, I mean, that can be a lot of work. Now, the, the plus side of it is that there's all these benefits if we do. Um, but I got that sense, even reading the book that, you know, I want to, I want to be a nice guy. I want to be engaged, but damn, maybe, I mean, it's a lot, it's a lot of work. Well, I told you I'm a work in progress, yeah. for sure. but there's also an old says, saying uh, about authors and, uh, I'm paraphrasing here, but it basically goes like this. We write the books that we need to read. Right. We yeah. write the books that we need to learn, you know, the, yeah. about the topics that we need to learn. And so this has been as much about curating the evidence and, and laying out the thoughts in a clear way, um, you know, for myself or for my kids, you know, mm -hmm. yeah, it's, it's really tough. And if anybody needed to learn this, this, these principles of being uh, selfless versus self-focused, well, you know, being what we call a live to giver. I mean, I, I was the first person that needed to read it, I think. Mm -hmm. um, but um, yeah, it, it, it is tough because, you know, I think we we've, we've gotten in this mindset of it's all about me ism. 
Mm -hmm. And um, it's actually harmful. Yeah. You know, there's tons of data behind that. Now, there there have also been some generational changes, and I I don't mean millennials uh, or anything like that. And I don't like a lot of that talk, but I think sometimes younger folks get a bad rap because every... Every generation thinks that the generation that comes after them is all screwed up. I mean, that's yeah. always that's always been true. <laughs> yeah. But, but if you look back, like, you know, in in the um what they called the greatest generation, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the the people that, you know, grew up uh in the depression and fought in World War, you know, it it um they were they they were characterized by a lot of things and and sacrifice and selflessness was, was I think chiefly among them. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the, in the, uh, during the civil rights movement, um, it was about, you know, something greater than yourself and the hippies, it was all peace, love and understanding. Right. And then something took a decisive turn inward in the 1970s. Yeah. And then, you know, Gordon Gecko in wall street in the 1980s was, you know, he was the greed is good guy. And, mm-hmm. um, it just sort of, and then at some point, I don't know who invented the selfie stick, but like that, um, um, uh, I can't remember who said this now, but it called called the selfie stick the the greatest totem to interpersonal misunderstanding. <laughs> oh wow! Because it is, you know, it, it, it's all about me. Look at me, and it's just it. It, it was. Um, it was eye-opening to do the research because you you see that that's really harming you over time. It's yeah. sustained over time. And similarly, you know, yeah, it's hard to be a live to giver, but it's got to be something that that you, you know, y- y- you make it part of who you are through habit. Yeah. It's not a one and done, right? That right. would be like yes. that would be like thinking if I if I eat my vegetables once, I'll live to be 90. No, you gotta yeah. like you got to do it every day, day in and day out, you know? Yep. Um, so. Uh, one of the parts about uh, Wonder Drug that, that really stuck for, or struck me was um, your, uh, your writing about the study that they did at Brown University around 12 step. Uh, we had a guest on mm. several episodes ago, Polly Bornstein, who is a, a, an alcoholic, a recovering alcoholic and an alcoholic counselor. Is that the right mm-hmm. term, Sean? Yeah. Um, uh, which was a great episode. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, so for, first I need to just say, I'm, I'm not an, uh, I'm not an expert in addiction medicine. So, yep. um, with that, um, you know, caveat, uh, but I, I, we did go through the research in, in a rigorous way. And what it points to is that it's that last step, that commitment to serve somebody else who is in the midst of the same struggle that you were in, that that is where it sticks. Um, and it's, I don't, I don't know enough about the field to say if it's because of accountability or, or what it's about, but that's, um, you know, they, uh, they say that if you do the first 11 steps, you'll probably slide backwards, but it's that last step, um, that, um, makes it, um, something that can be permanent. Which is consistent with this theme of compassion, right? That's right. I, I'm curious if you've gotten any pushback. Anybody like, hey, Steve, Maz, this this is just all bullshit. I mean, have you have you heard from anyone or any, any, any groups around? 
What's that? You mean the whole concept? The whole concept. That serving yeah. others can be the best yep. medicine for yourself. Yeah. Yep. I told you I'm fluent in sarcasm, right? <laughs> yeah. So, so if you would bring that to me, I'd say, well, which of the 280 original science <laughs> research yeah. studies curating the book do you actually have a problem with? Because, right? I get it, right? But it doesn't mean somebody still isn't coming. Coming. Well, well, to no, push you. Back. But but you raise an important point, right? And um, I, I I heard a pastor teach this teach about this one time where he said someone can be presented with all of the facts, but if they're not emotionally ready, they, their eyes won't be open to the facts. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's, it's sort of like, um, you have to be able to receive. Right. And so, um, yeah, we, I, we, we get that all the time and, mm -hmm. um, you know, I can, you know, uh, do a, a data, I can go into my, you know, part data nerd, part prosecutor mode really quickly. And, you know, ninja sure. somebody with, you know, uh, P values and confidence intervals, but if they don't <laughs> want to hear it, right. If yeah, they don't yeah. want to hear it, they're not going to hear it. And that's, right. I think that's normal. Uh, you know, that's, uh, you know, your, your ears need to be ready before you can, before you can hear, you know, mm-hmm. Well, we've got uh, eight minutes left and we want to get to our three canned questions at the end. But I, I wanted to tell you, Steve, um, our last episode was with a friend of mine, Becky Crow. Uh, well, first, let me just say this. In your book, you wrote, if you're in a dark place, just stuck in a rut or feel lost, we prescribe serving others. We would mm -hmm. prescribe it to every single person on earth. We would pump it into the water supply. Um, Becky Crow, my friend, has lived the life of service but was feeling i would not i would not say she was in a dark place but she was feeling lost a little bit in midlife last summer she went over to greece for seven weeks to teach refugees how to how to swim these are people that had made a crossing across seven miles of water almost drowned or saw friends and and, and family drowned um and she she texted me during that time that it had brought her back to life um which is like her own study with an N of one that like you talked about earlier. Um, we also did an episode about a, a priest uh, who taught me at Notre Dame. I don't know if you ever took a class with Father Michael Himes. I know the name. I, I didn't. Oh, but, if uh, you didn't, you missed name. out. Uh, he passed away recently, but he wrote a book called Doing the Truth and Love in which he said something to the effect of we're not all Mother Teresa. This leads to my question, you know, this idea and definitions around empathy, compassion, and serving others. What is serving others? When you talk about the nine opportunities for compassion a day, is, could it be as simple as being nice to the person who served you coffee, smiling at somebody? Um, like, how, how wide is that range of serving others? 100%. So we talk about starting small, right? So you, you don't have to quit your job, sell all your worldly possessions, uh, move to a third world country and start hauling water from a distant well. Mm -hmm. right? um, you have, we all have opportunities right around us. And so you don't need a change in your surroundings. You need a change in your experience of your surroundings, your daily surroundings. And it can be just those little things, as you mentioned, you know, we, we curated the, the evidence to show that it's, we call it the daily 16. So the mm -hmm. research supports that there's a threshold effect at about a hundred hours a year 
for the benefits of serving others. Well, that comes out. Yeah, I mean, most people don't take their medicine once a year. They take it once a day. And so it's, you know, 16 minutes a day and it can be the smallest things. Some, some people, um, uh, researchers call it a personal paradigm shift. So it's a, a taking your attention light from, you know, shining on yourself and shining on other people, but you can do that right where you live and work and serve. In fact, you can start with people that are under your own roof. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and those things can be some of the most powerful. Yeah, I, I, I was going to say, as I was reading the section in, in the book, and you referenced it in this, this conversation about um, kind of self-help activities, I mentioned that I'm a meditator. And for me, as, as I was reading what you wrote and thinking about why I do that, for me, it's, it's to be more present in the moment so that I can yeah. understand what's going on around me uh, and where I'm at. And and to look for those opportunities kind of to, to be a giver really. So it helps me to settle and be quiet so that I, that when I'm living, yeah, I know what's happening rather than being pushed by all the activities and actions around me. I heard it described one time like this, and it just stuck with me. Um, it's looking for the transcendent in the ordinary. Mm -hmm. And you only find that through connecting with other people. Mm -hmm. Well, but what would we say about self-compassion, which is a real notion, I think, right? Like, does you, we talk about how compassion heals. Does self-compassion offer some healing effect? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, it is a, a very well-defined, bona fide area of research, and it can be helpful. I actually, full disclosure, didn't get it. Like, I, I didn't really understand what it meant until it was explained to me this way. Um, you know, in our heads, it, because we all talk to ourselves more than we will ever talk to anybody else in the mm -hmm. world. Mm -hmm. We've got that, that, that chatter that goes on in our head, the, the stories that we tell ourselves, you know? And when you're going through difficulty, sometimes that mental chatter might be things like, you're not good enough, you're never going to get out of this. You're a failure. Mm -hmm. You're so stupid. How could you have done that? And so here's how I how self-compassion was described to me. What would your best friend say to you? What would your best friend say to you? They would say, no, li listen, it, 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 it's okay. You tried very hard. These things happen all the time. You're a good person. I care about you. And you know, next time is going to be different. And they would yeah. say all the things that you would say to your best friend if they weren't in a time of struggle. Mm. And then self-compassion is replacing your damaging, destructive self-talk with what would your best friend say to you? Mm. Love that. It's good. Yeah. yeah. Forgive, and, you know, forgive self, yourself. Yeah. That's right. Uh, we've got three minutes. I think you have to run. So you've, it's your fault that you only have three minutes to answer these three questions. So don't, don't try to shift the blame. Fuck it's well, his I, fault. I, I yeah. feel like I'm really set up. I'm being set up here. <laughs> you are being set up. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, so inside the actor studio type three questions, we ask everybody if you're game. Go for it. Okay. What, uh, what do you wish you could have told your 10 year old self? Um. <laughs> I would have told him that 
Jesus is who he said he was and get to know him as fast as you possibly can, not when you're an old guy. Second question. Do you have a mantra in life or even a mantra these days? Um, certain scripture verses, uh, but you know, it depends what season of life I'm in. So it's not just one, um, but that's the source for me. And finally, Steve, uh, what do you hope that people will say about you at your wake? Um, I don't really, uh, I don't really think about that too much because I think we often take ourselves way too seriously. <laughs> and um, I'm more interested on in what's going to be set out, said about me when I get on the other side. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Fair enough. Well, we are at the top of the hour. Um, I, I think your job is more urgent than than my job, and so <laughs> I think we should let you go. <laughs> Yeah, hey, thanks for been, taking the hour to talk with us. It's been a pleasure to be with you guys. Uh, your work is very important, uh, and I admire you for that. And so thank you for all the work that you do. And um, it was a pleasure. Yeah, Appreciate it. Maybe I'll see you in South Bend one of these days. Go Irish. There you yeah. go. <laughs> see you thanks, later. Steve. Take care. This is Chris. Thanks again for joining us on this episode of If You've Come This Far. And this is Sean. Remember to check us out at menliving.org.